If you allow God to spot you in the gym, you'll soon be able to lift the things that currently feel like they're crushing you. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor James, bringing you truth and peace through God's Word. In this episode, we consider the method God uses to discipline His children. We take a look at biblical examples and recognize how God uses discipline to show His love. Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James with the Gospel message in Enduring Discipline. Thanks for listening. Here we read. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline because God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us always for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather be healed. This is God's word. There was a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon by the name of Dr. Paul Brand, who actually spent the majority of the early part of his career doing his surgery, doing his work over in India, and actually in other parts of the world. And when he came back and he started doing his work in the United States, he noticed like a drastic shift in the character of the people that he was working with. And he wrote it down in a book with a best-selling Christian author by the name of Philip Yancey. The book is called The Gift of Pain. And here's what he says. He says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying that in other countries, it's not that pain isn't painful. It is. It's that suffering doesn't derail your overall life purpose and mission. Because in America, where for a lot of people, the basic goal of life is comfort and pleasure and personal attainment and living your best life right now. See, suffering completely stands in the way of that particular life goal. And what he's saying is that despite the fact that American people have historically unprecedented levels of their basic needs being met, they simultaneously are given by their society fewer resources to deal with the inevitable brutalities of life than maybe any other culture that he's seen. 
It fits in tonight with us as we talk about Hebrews, because remember, each week we've been saying that Hebrews is a letter that is written to Jews who have converted to the Christian faith, but they're reconsidering the Christian faith because life has gotten so difficult. Instead of attachment to Jesus making their lives super easy, it's actually complicated their lives in some ways, and they don't know what to do with it, in part because they're spiritual babies. They're brand new Christians which means that their expressions of faith are sometimes almost infantile. And with little kids who have really, really weak little arms, they can't carry very heavy burdens. And so for you and me, what we need to think about is if you have ever felt or maybe right now feel like life is too heavy to stand up underneath it, hopefully what we're looking at here tonight will give us some resources to do exactly that. And the teaching tonight will go in these three points. We're going to look at suffering as discipline, training for progress, and a finish line of suffering, okay? So reframing pain and suffering in our lives as discipline from a loving father, understanding that for us to become the best and strongest version of ourselves, it requires some level of training, which can often be intense, and the assurance that there is, in fact, an end date for any possible pain that we go through when we enter into eternity, right? Suffering is discipline, Training for progress, a finish line of suffering. First of all, suffering as discipline. It's not a secret that suffering is, in fact, a bit of a logical problem for Christians. That's not a new thing. So sometimes, especially I've heard from, I guess I would say, lapsed Christians, Christians who are raised in a Christian family but have kind of fallen away from the faith, who will say things because they went off to college and they learned something in philosophy and whatever, and they'll say things like, I just can't reconcile the idea of a loving God with all the suffering that we see in the world. How do those things possibly have coexistence? It's actually an entire branch of philosophy called theodicy. It's not a new thing. So let's just start there. The first time I've heard sort of an academic argument like this put forth in world history was actually several centuries BC by the Greek philosopher Epicurus. And he famously and concisely, helpfully, stated it like this. It goes like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. If he's able but he's not willing, then he's malevolent. He's not loving. If he's both able and willing, then whence cometh evil? And if he's neither able nor willing, then why would we worship him? Why should we call him God? A lot of Christians struggle to answer the questions of their skeptical friends when they run into an argument like this. And actually what concerns me even more is that a lot of Christians, I think themselves, suffer under the weight of this logic whenever they experience some pain and suffering in life. The response is really just this. There's a problem with the initial statement. There's a problem with the question. And the problem is this. It's a presumption that human beings are capable of fully knowing good and evil perfectly. Okay? So let's just say Epicurus. He is like an embodiment of what is arguably humanity's biggest problem. It's an arrogance that presumes that in our fallen state, we can nonetheless know and should know everything that God himself knows, including the very definitions of good and evil. And um, we can't. In fact, let's just for a second say that we are like children to God as a spiritual father. Then how do children relate to fathers or adults in general? I got a real quick illustration for this. 
if you are to give a little three-year-old who has a disease some medicine that will cure their disease, and you give them the medicine, do you think that a three-year-old consuming that medicine will describe it as good or bad? Invariably, almost, they will call it bad. You know why? Because most medicine is bitter, and little children have super sensitive palates, especially to the flavor of bitterness. Uh, something like 90% of pediatricians say that the biggest obstacle to completing treatment of medicine is the horrible flavor of medicine with kids, which is why you have some crazy flavored medicines out there now, right? Now, let me ask you this, though. From the perspective of the doctor or any adult, when they're looking at the medicine that can cure that child's disease, do they consider the medicine good or evil? Do they consider it good or bad? Invariably, of course, they say it's good. So the children say it's bad. The adult and the doctor says it's good. The difference between the two is simply the perspective of maturity. This is the case with God's children in general. Due to our limited perspective, we can't actually know why God allows the suffering that he does when he allows it. What we can know, and this is actually very helpful, is what it is not. So first off, we know it's not punishment from God. And you know how we know that? Because why did Jesus come to this planet other than to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, to accept all punishment for sin in our place. He completed that punishment. He paid all the debt and God is holy, so he can't collect twice on the same sins. If you believe Jesus accepted full punishment in your place for your sins, then you cannot say God is punishing me for my sins. Okay? That's where we start. I think the actual better question is, is it possible that there's something in my life that I dislike that is not punishment. Is it possible instead that God allows at times some unpleasantness in life, specifically maybe for some resistance to help strengthen our weak spiritual muscles or for some adversity to help build our spiritual character or just simply as a vital part of the discipleship process? According to our text, the answer to this lesson for why we experience suffering in life is that God is a loving father who disciplines the children that he cares about for their good. And in fact, the word that's used here for discipline in Greek, it's, the, it's one of the first Greek words that I ever learned. It's paidoio. The basic root definition of it is to teach a little child. Now, it certainly includes things like chastising at various points, but basically what it is, is it's a controlled environment where an authority figure allows a child to develop into maturity. And a child, by definition, is not going to understand the whys of that. So when a child experiences resistance and hardship and pain, they cannot know the perspective that this might, in the long run, actually be good for me. By the way, many of you are parents, and you know this already. You've experienced this in your children before. Because at some point in time in the past, you probably have made a decision that was clearly in their objective best interest. Maybe you took a job in a different location that was good for the family, or you moved uh, into like a different school district, and you clearly had the child's best interest in mind, and yet because the child didn't get it, what did they say? You don't love me. It's unfair. Maybe if they're bold enough, I hate you. And in those moments, what you're seeing in that little one is an attitude and an ignorance that we often demonstrate when we grumble before God. 
Just because you can't see why something would be in your long-term good doesn't mean it can't be for your long-term good. It's just if you're humble enough to say, I can't know all things. And by the way, if I demand an explanation for why, then I cannot have a childlike relationship with God. Some of you heard me mention this before. The very nature of a child and parent relationship is a three-year-old. A three-year-old intuitively knows they don't want another three-year-old as their parent. I don't want that bozo who's just as strong, just as intelligent as me, uh, just as wise as me. They know I need an adult to be in charge of me. But the moment you enter into that relationship, it means that they are going to have some operations in their life that you don't fully understand. That's the nature of the relationship. And so when we experience suffering, it's for a couple different reasons. Biblically speaking, sometimes it's for chastisement, which means correction of our current self-absorption and inappropriate behavior. A great biblical example of that we studied about a month ago is the person of Jonah. Very clearly, God is chastising Jonah to correct his behavior. However, some other suffering is not so much correcting our past behaviors, it's correcting our potential future behaviors by dealing with our current immaturity and lack of character. Joseph in the Bible is a wonderful example of this. We're going to talk about him a little bit later. And yet there's other times that we experience suffering in life where because of a finite state of our logic and, and our minds, we just can't know. We cannot know what the possible explanations for it are. And God simply at that moment is trying to drive us deeper into dependence on him and understand the freedom and peace that comes from just letting God be God. That's basically the entire point of the book of Job. So you see, suffering can come at any time. It can come from anywhere, but the only time it can come is under a sovereign God's allowance because he's teaching his children under a controlled environment. He's trying to get us to become less in our own sight so that he can become more in our sight. Maybe the best way I've ever heard this put actually is uh, something that Martin Luther once wrote in one of his commentaries. He said this, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. Hence, one who is not yet nothing, out of him, God cannot make anything. That is deep, but it is so spiritually profound. I'm reading that thing twice. This is good. This is good. It is God's nature to make something out of nothing. Yes. Hence, one who is not yet nothing. Someone who is full of themselves. God cannot make anything out of him. Therefore, God accepts only the forsaken and he cures only the sick and he gives sight only to the blind and he restores life only to the dead and he sanctifies only sinners and he gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched. Let me just summarize this first point then. God is less a boss. He's more a loving spiritual father. But what loving fathers do is they teach, which often involves discipline and allowing hardship in life. They allow that hardship. Why? Because whatever present suffering they allow youth to go through, they're trying to stave off far worse future suffering. By the nature of being a child, you cannot expect to understand all of the operations of your parental figure. But the only way to enter into a relationship with that parental figure is to approach him as a child. 
Uh, Do you remember the spot in the Gospels where Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom? What does that mean? It doesn't mean become childish. It means if you want God to serve as your loving father, you have to accept the nature of relationship. Somebody who is bigger than you, smarter than you, wiser than you, and therefore chooses at times to do things that you would never choose to do for yourself because it's for your future good. All right, so suffering as discipline. Point number two, training for progress. So we've said there's suffering of various points that God allows as part of his teaching, part of his discipline. It's necessary for our development. It's necessary for our future health. But it feels a little bit like, okay, I have to go through some pain right now in order to get something good later. That feels a little bit like the teaching of like works righteousness. Like I have to do something now in order to have a good future. I thought Jesus paid for my salvation. I thought Jesus paid for all of my sins. We're not talking about salvation here. You cannot pay for your own salvation because it's already completely paid for in Christ. What we're talking about here is the development that loving parents bring into their children because God's grace meets you exactly where you're at, but because he loves you, he doesn't let you stay exactly where you're at. If we jump down to one of the verses near the end of the text, in verse 11, it says this, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is the last time I'm going to do a Greek thing tonight, but that word trained, it's the Greek word gymnazo, which you might be able to see the word gymnasium in there. That's exactly what it means, because what happens at a gymnasium? You get trained body and mind going through resistance to develop muscles and maturity. In fact, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, almost every young man, uh, sometimes other children too, but especially every young boy, it was believed could only fully become a man someday by being trained in the gymnasium. Because the belief was when you lovingly push a child in a controlled environment to face resistance in their life, they will develop muscles. And when they develop those personal, psychological, emotional, physical muscles, when they're an adult, then they have pre-existing resources to fight back against the adversities that happen in life. Let me say this specifically to fathers, because fathers are the ones that are repeatedly addressed here. And I think for a variety of reasons that I won't get into, it's uniquely important for fathers to do this. Fathers, you do not want as your life goal your children's youth to be easy and pain-free. That better not be the goal. The goal is that they become strong. I've heard a lot of parents say this before, I want my child's life to be better than mine was or whatever. No, no, the goal is not that they have easy, pain-free childhoods. The goal is that they develop strength as children so that they can become adults and be released into the world with the resources to deal with it. That means discipline. And God, as a father, disciplines us, and he teaches us, and he coaches us, and he mentors us through controlled resistance to become the best version of ourselves. This is super easy to illustrate, by the way. If you go to the gym and you do a set of bicep curls and you do, let's say, three sets, 10 reps, and you're pretty much maxing out on those bicep curls, you lift the weight, you lift the weight, you lift the weight. After you do those three sets, your bicep, how does it feel? It's fatigued, 
It's drained, it's flimsy and dangling there. It feels very weak. In reality, has that muscle grown weaker or stronger? And that is a universal principle of your physical muscles, your spiritual muscles, your mental and psychological and emotional and relational muscles. Through resistance and controlled environments, when we push under God's direction, we become stronger. That is the discipling gymnasium of God, and that's what happens in the household of God. The author spends actually the rest of the second half of our text uh, describing the benefits that come from a loving father's discipline. We'll unpack them a little bit more in our growth groups this week, but specifically what he says is, when you are disciplined by God properly, you develop more respect for other human beings. And for that matter, when you're disciplined property, you develop holiness. Why? Because Becoming like God is not simply a matter of being educated. It's a matter of conditioning. When you get discipled by God and disciplined by God, you can develop peace in life because when you face resistance, you have a way of feeling more confident to face certain adversities and struggles. And finally, because you're becoming stronger under God's discipline, you become a better asset to the rest of the world. And isn't that the goal in life anyways, that as redeemed children of God who know exactly where we're going eternally, in the short years that we get here on earth, we would be the hands and feet and voice of Christ. So he invites us into his gymnasium to train so that we can be sent out into the world as strong ambassadors. I'm going to close this point by, I already mentioned earlier that I was going to come back to him, but it's my favorite biblical illustration of this discipleship point, this gymnasium point. It's the person of Joseph. And the story, if, if you're not completely familiar, you can read through it in Genesis 37 through 50, but the quick synopsis is this. Joseph was the favorite son and practically an idol of his father, Jacob. Now, why is that? Well, Joseph's mother was this really beautiful woman that Jacob, the father, actually unfortunately had several women in his life. Well, Rachel was the most beautiful. She was the object of his affection. But when she died in childbirth of his younger brother, Benjamin, the object of Jacob's affection shifted from Rachel to her eldest son, Joseph. And he favored Joseph over his other brothers and he spoiled Joseph. And this also meant that he failed to discipline Joseph. And that was very evident in the way that Joseph interacted with his brothers. Because when you see the little snapshots that we get of the interaction, you see a young man who is unaware and proud and self-absorbed and narcissistic and he's not even aware how he's hurting other people in the process. Jacob never disciplined him. Fortunately, Jacob wasn't his primary father. God is his primary father, and God wanted to use Joseph, and therefore God took over the reins and said, well, I'm going to discipline him for you. And what did God then allow into Joseph's life? He allowed his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery over in Egypt. He allowed, even after Joseph resisted the sexual entrapment of Potiphar's wife, Joseph got thrown in jail for that. And as he's in jail and he's helping out fellow prisoners, he gets forgotten by those friends and he's wasting away in jail. And after all that time, he has been humbled by God. He's humbled, he's lost his sense of, I can control my future through all of my talents and all my, he lost that. He's been completely humbled out of that. And then God says, okay, now I can use you. Now that you've been emptied of yourself, you can be filled with the goodness of God. And he elevates him to the position of second in command so that he's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And he administrates 
the entire empire in such a way that he saves thousands and thousands and thousands of lives, not only in Egypt, but in surrounding countries, including his own family members. And after they are reconciled at the very end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, verse 20, there's this culminating statement where Joseph, reflecting on all his hardship, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You know what the it is that God intended? It's all the garbage that he went through in this life. God turned it and redeemed it into a force for the saving of many lives. If you allow God to spot you in the gym, you'll soon be able to lift the things that currently feel like they're crushing you. Final thought, finish line of suffering. So what we learned here, Joseph became a spiritual son of God because God lovingly but firmly disciplined him out of his pride and then God could use him and he saved thousands of lives temporarily and that's an enormous blessing and feat. But really that story is primarily recorded for us to point ahead to an even greater version of this story because God would send another son. And the difference is this son had no pride and he never did anything wrong and therefore he didn't deserve to be disciplined. But Jesus Christ, our perfect brother, came. Why? Because he loved us and he volunteered to take the ultimate suffering in our place. The suffering that we deserved for our grumbling and our unbelief and our sin. And our brother Jesus loved us enough to take all of that. Becoming a Christian doesn't necessarily make your life easier. In fact, in some ways, it complicates it. What it does do, according to the author of Hebrews, is when you face those inevitable sufferings of life, if you face them while looking at Jesus, he won't necessarily take away the pain, but he will take away the fear of the pain. And that makes you extraordinarily useful. I've been holding on to this passage. I didn't even read it earlier because I wanted to finish the series and finish this lesson with this. But right before the lesson that I, we read as our sermon lesson tonight, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, the author says this, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I want to be very clear here. Fixing your eyes on Jesus in general is not going to help you very much. I think a lot of people fix their eyes on Jesus and then when they're looking at him, they mostly grumble and uh, sort of interrogate him for all the problems that he's allowed to come into their lives. There's a lot of religions that tell you to fix their eyes on the religious leaders for advice and as an example. The writer of the Hebrews doesn't say fix your eyes on Jesus. He says fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. He's the author and finisher of your salvation. He's paid the ultimate punishment, so your suffering is going to go away. You can be guaranteed that your life gets better. You always have hope beyond whatever you're going through on this planet. And I want to close like this. I, I don't mean at all to be dismissive of suffering, and I don't know what suffering. I know a lot of you are going through suffering. And if you're going through something right now, or you have faced tremendous suffering in the past, or you will go through a lot of suffering in the near future, and you will. You know this life ends in death, right? You can't outrun this. You're going to face it, so you might as well face it. 
and let the fears be taken away. And I'm not immune to this either. I myself am a child of God, often in pain, just like you, and tempted to ask God why, which he's big enough to handle. I cannot tell you why for your suffering. I can tell you why not. It's not because he doesn't love you. His cross proves that undeniably. It's not because he's not powerful enough to help you. His empty tomb proves that unequivocally. Jesus didn't suffer so that we in a fallen world would never suffer. He suffered, first of all, so that someone would suffer with us, and we know it. Because suffering is miserable, but suffering alone is absolute hell. He suffered to guarantee that in pain for all of our sins, we know when we die and enter into eternity, our suffering is going to come to an end. There is an expiration date on your suffering. And it'll only be joy where every tear is wiped away and every grief is gone. And Jesus suffered so that he could redeem our suffering. Because if we're eternal souls and ministry agents on earth, his basic MO is that he takes death and he transforms it into life. So whatever suffering and death you're going through right now, it is going to be meaningful and purposeful, even if you can't see it in this moment. We are the joy that was set before him and we can trust him. And until we get to stand before him face to face, we will endure a hardship as discipline because God is treating us as his children. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, whatever suffering we're currently facing, we ask our loving Father that if possible, it would be taken away. And if you have other plans, we are still going to praise you in the midst of all of it. And we're going to be confident that this pain, redeemed, will produce righteousness. We are eager to see our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.